Good morning. Good to see everybody. This is the Halloween edition. So let's let's stand up if you wouldn't mind joining me in prayer. Let's just pray. Um, I'm gonna have fun with it, but I don't like talking about some of it either. So, <laughs> so just open up your heart right now. Open up your mind. Just make yourself available to the presence of God, the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Truth, Holy Spirit. We thank you for downloading and speaking into our hearts and minds. We thank you for your presence and your goodness. I ask you to help me deliver this message. And Lord, we just thank you for uh, helping us to understand some things and come into truth and freedom in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. So I want to talk about the devil today. <clears throat> talk about the devil. I wish uh, I wish it was the 80s. I could have a nice clip of the church lady. How many remember the church lady? <laughs> From uh, the Saturday Night Live skits, right? <laughs> yeah, Dana Car. Was that Dana Carvey? Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. So that would be fun to revive that, huh? Uh, <laughs> so I, I suppose that um, you know, when you, when you start talking about certain things, certain things are harder to deconstruct than others. This one is very hard to look at because our ideas of the devil and what the devil is and what the devil's like and Satan and Lucifer are not just a part of our Christian belief system. They are uh, archetypes that are deeply, deeply embedded in the collective unconscious of particularly people in the West, uh, but really around the world. I don't, m- most people don't know this, but did you know that, that Buddhism, Tibetan Buddhism, has a hell? And your hell, your Christian hell, has nothing on Tibetan health. <laughs> I don't know if you knew that. Uh, Islam has a hell. Uh, so the, this concept of evil and hell and everything is, is so deeply embedded in the collective unconsciousness of humanity and for as long as we've been around. But particularly when you start talking about the Western version of the devil... Uh, you have to understand that I'm not just addressing a belief system. I'm actually addressing a very ancient archetype and pattern of energy that's, that's, that's in people. It's one of the reasons I said that I hate to talk about it. So I kind of accidentally started this last Sunday <laughs> and didn't do it very artfully or skillfully. And so I want to come back and look at it, and it's Halloween, so it's a good time to do that, right? So here's, because here's the thing, when, when I, some of the things I said last Sunday, you'd have thought I renounced any faith in God at all. Some of the response I got, it's like, oh my God, he's now, he's an atheist. He doesn't believe in the spiritual world or, or anything. Uh, and I, and I just realized it's because this idea of what and who the devil is is so deeply embedded. And particularly if you ever were at like intercessory prayer places or conferences or, you know, different stuff. I mean, you have to admit the devil plays a major role in our, in the way that we make sense and give meaning to the evil that happens in the world and even the way we give sense and make meaning of stuff that happens in our lives, right? But how many of you believe (laughs) Jesus when he said, you'll know the truth and the truth will do what? set you free, right? So I just want to examine some of the passages in Scripture and look at what does the Scripture actually say about Satan and Lucifer. And then after we're done looking at that, then you can decide how that fits with what you previously believed. 
Does that sound okay? Now, the first mistake that we make, and your Western Bibles do this since, since uh, the Latin translation of Jerome. This has been in the Western translations of the Scripture. So it's not any of our faults that we believe this, but you're going to find out shortly that this is absolutely not biblical from the original Hebrew languages or Greek languages or original cultures at all. And what I mean by that is we have a tendency to believe that Satan is a proper name or Lucifer is a proper name for a being who fell, an angel who fell. So here's what I, here's what I was taught. Uh, there's this angel, Lucifer, who was a cherub, who was the praise and worship. <laughs> I'm sorry for laughing. Was the praise and worship leader in heaven, Right. And the reason I, the reason I laugh is because, we, I gotta say, I have, maybe early on there was a lot of conflict with the worship team when we were young, like 20 years ago or whatever, but I've not experienced any conflict at all with anybody on the worship team, or any mu- the musicians, yeah, I mean it's just, you guys especially now seem to get along great and it's just doing an awesome job. But you talk to most pastors and they'd say when Lucifer fell, he fell in the choir loft. Or, or he landed on the worship team or something because typically there's so much competition between musicians and singers and, and whatever. And, uh, and so, but here's the idea. Here's, here's the mythology, if you will. Uh, Satan was this anointed cherub that was in heaven and leading praise and worship. And then he fell because he got too prideful and thought, oh, I'm going to be like God, right? And tried to lead this rebellion against God, and Michael and angels threw him out of heaven, and uh, and then he became the serpent in the Garden of Eden, and then he deceived humanity, and then he leads this hierarchy of beings, right? Because we take Ephesians chapter six, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers. And how many you know conferences did you go to where you had it outlined what a principality was, what a power was, and you get this idea that there's this hierarchy of evil, this structure of evil that is just encompassing the whole earth. Right, and and its 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 overlord is this person whose name is Satan, or the devil, right, or Lucifer, correct, and has this organized structure and kingdom and and whatever, and then that plays into our worldview, and we think, okay, we we when when something doesn't happen for our cause, right, whether it's uh, we're pro-life and there's you know. Abortion clinics, we're trumpeting the doctrines of the church and the Muslims are trumpeting their doctrines and so they're deceived by the devil and so then pretty soon we have to pray into these situations and and that's on a corporate level, right? And then on an individual level, something goes wrong in your life, any kind of opposition you have in life, any anybody comes against you, well, the devil just got a hold of them. Uh, anybody, you know, your kid runs off, well, it's just the devil. There's a funny skit, I can't remember who who it, who it is, two, uh, two black guys do this skit where they, they dress up as women in church and they're talking about... Uh, they're, have you seen that? They're talking about their problems with their kids, and they're like, "Oh, Satan just is in his heart," and you know, they're doing all this prayer stuff, and it's just hilarious. But, but for a lot of us, that's what we think is really going on, and we think that's how life is. And here's the thing: we think it's so supportable in Scripture that we never question it. We never even question it. So let's find out. So let's let's start with the word Satan. Now, when I was in Bible college, I'm, I'm going to read this story because it's 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 a funny story. When I was in Bible college, I was taught a principle of the law of first mention. 
Which means the first time something shows up in the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, the first time a word or a concept comes up, there are certain aspects of that concept that carry all the way through to the New Testament. So a perfect example of this is Genesis chapter 4, the story of Cain and Abel. first mention of sin, the first mention of a lamb, and the first mention of bloodshed. So you bring it all the way through. John the Baptist, when Jesus is baptized, he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, right? Through the shedding of blood. So you see how that concept follows through. So what they would say is the first time something's mentioned, it has a meaning that carries through the rest of the scripture, and you have to honor that first mention. It's like the seed of revelation that grows. And if you miss the principle at the first mention... Now, I don't know if that's a valid hermeneutical principle, but that's what I was taught, and that's what I know a lot of pastors and other Bible interpreters are taught. Okay? So let's look at the first mention of Satan in the Bible. That dirty Satan. You ready? Love this story. Um, Where's it at? Sorry. Where's my bookmark? (laughs) Next page. It's uh, Numbers 22.22, and I'll just read the story for you. It says, then God's anger was aroused because Balaam the prophet went to curse Israel. So I'm filling in the blanks there for you. And the angel of the Lord took his stand in the way as an adversary against him, and he was riding on his donkey, and his two servants were with him. Now the donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his drawn sword in his hand, and the donkey turned aside out of the way and went into the field. So Balaam struck the donkey to turn her back onto the road. Then the angel of the Lord stood in a narrow place between the vineyards with a wall on one side and a wall on that side. And when the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she pushed herself against the wall and crushed Balaam's foot against the wall. So he struck her again. Then the angel of the Lord went further and stood in a narrow place where there was no way to turn either to the right or the left. And when the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she lay down under Balaam. So Balaam's anger was aroused and he struck the donkey with his staff. Then the Lord opened the mouth of the donkey. So Mr. Ed. Well, and she said to Balaam, what have I done to you? that you have struck me these three times. And Balaam said to the donkey, like, he just responds. (laughs) And the Balaam said to the donkey, because you have abused me, I wish there were a sword in my hand, for now I would kill you. So the donkey said to Balaam, am I not your donkey on which you have ridden ever since I became yours to this day? Was I ever disposed to do this to you? And he said, no. Then the angel of the Lord, or then the Lord opened Balaam's eyes and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his drawn sword in his hand and he bowed his face flat on the ground and the angel of the Lord said, why have you struck your donkey these three times? Behold, I have come out to stand against you because your way is perverse. Where's Satan in that passage? <laughs> See, it doesn't get translated. The word in, in Hebrew is never a proper name. Never. In Hebrew, there is never a proper name Satan for any being in the Hebrew Bible. The word in Hebrew is ha-satan, or the Satan. So if Satan's not a 
proper name, and I'm telling you it's in this passage, it just hasn't been translated, then what does the word actually mean? The word actually means one who is in opposition or one who is an adversary to someone else. And so there's twice in that passage that the word hasatan is used to reference the angel of the Lord who's opposing in a righteous way Balaam who's on his way to go curse Israel. So the first mention of a Satan in the Bible is the angel of the Lord. Yeah, that went over about like I thought it might. Let's look at another one that might surprise you. Come with me to 1 Samuel 29. Like, it would just help if they'd be consistent in the translations, right? It's almost like there's an agenda to make you think things that aren't true. Hmm. 1 Samuel 29, verse 1. It says, uh, Then the Philistines gathered together all their armies at Aphek, and the Israelites encamped by a fountain which is in Jezreel. And the lords of the Philistines passed in review by hundreds and by thousands. But David and his men passed in review at the rear of Achish. And the princes of the Philistines said, What are these Hebrews doing here? And Achish said to the princes of the Philistines, Is this not David, the servant of Saul, king of Israel, who has been with me these days or these years? And to this day I have found no fault in him since he defected to me. Most people don't know that he defected and fought with the Philistines. But he did. But the princes of the Philistines were angry with him. And so the princes of the Philistines said to him, Make this fellow return that he may go back to the place which you have appointed for him. And do not let him go down with us into battle, lest in the battle he become our adversary. Ha Satan. Oh, so there's another mention of a Satan in the Bible. And it's none other than King David, the man after God's own heart. Uh Uh-oh. Let's look at another one. 1 Kings chapter 11, and I'm only giving you a few references. First Kings 11, 14. Now the Lord raised up Hasatan, an adversary. The Lord raised up an adversary, a Satan against Solomon. Hadad, the Edomite. He was a descendant of the king in Edom. He raised up a Satan. This is not a cosmic being. In the first reference, the angel of the Lord is referenced as a Satan. In The passage we looked at with David, David the human being is a Satan. Here we see this other guy that God is raising up as a Satan against Solomon. And almost every place throughout the Old Testament scriptures, with a couple of exceptions, the reference of Hasatan is to a person who is an adversary. So it's not a proper name. It is a description or a function or a role of opposition to something or someone. It has no good or evil judgment on it whatsoever. When the angel of the Lord is a Satan to Balaam, that's a good thing. When God's raising up an adversary to you know, deal with Saul, that's a good thing. So you cannot, from a Hebrew, biblical, Old Testament perspective, equate Satan... Hasatan, and I know you're going to get triggered off this, but let's just even say Satanism was something evil. 
Because in the Bible, it's neutral. It simply describes the role of someone who is an adversary. What about the book of Job? Let's look at that. Because that's, that's one place where it's translated. Are we doing okay? It's bad enough I've taken away your Lord and you don't know where I've laid him. Now I've taken away your Satan. Oh my God, how are we ever going to make sense of life again? Who are we ever going to blame for the next time the car breaks down? Or the next time we don't get the parking space we want? Or whatever. Verse 6 of Job chapter 1. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Hasatan also came among them. Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, from where did you come? So Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking back and forth on it. And then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil. So Satan answered the Lord and said, does Job fear God for nothing? You've made a hedge around him. Uh, around his household and around all that he has on every side. You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But now stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will surely curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not lay a hand on his person. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Now wait a minute. I thought Satan was kicked out of heaven. I thought Lucifer was kicked out of heaven. Because we equate this stuff. We, we take something that's not a proper name and we make it a proper name and then we cherry pick verses and we make all these connections and we come up with this elaborate tapestry that falls apart when you start looking at the threads. Right? So first of all, you understand the sons of God is a reference to in, in, in the ancient Mesopotamia, in the ancient Near East, it, it was not monotheistic. And Hebrew... Teaching, Israel, the Old Testament, the Torah, parts of the Bible, is not monotheistic. Monotheistic means the belief in that there is only one God. Well, that's self-evident just in the Ten Commandments. Think about it. I'm the Lord, Yahweh, and what? You shall have no other God before me. Well, how can... I mean, right there, God's acknowledging the presence of other gods. Is that okay? So you had pantheons, you had, you had, you had groups of, of beings that represented different forces and energies like thunder and lightning and, and, and all wind and all this stuff. The, the sun. Are you breathing? So the Hebrews believed that, that, that God was just the creator of all that. And the, so the sons of God came to become angels. So if you look at Christian, especially early Christian, you know, post, I'm sorry, pre-Reformation Christianity, they have pantheons of angels. Archangels, saints that are over certain things. What are they talking about? They're giving you an image to tap into energies that are the diversity, but not God. The diversity of the divine nature, but not God himself. How's that? So in the story, Hasatan is one of the sons of God who comes into heaven before the presence of the Lord. And his, his name there is the adversary 
And what we know from other ancient Near Eastern literature is that this being functions as sort of the purifier in the earth, the, the prosecuting attorney, or or really um, ancient kings would plant spies to find out what was really going on, and they would be termed the adversary or the Hasatan. And so the idea is is that God has this agent roaming the earth and comes back to report to him. And so on that day, he brings him a report. And God asks him specifically, what's the report on my servant Job? So he's not coming in opposition and, and accusing like you might think. God, he's functioning as God's spy. I'm sorry, that's hard for us to get our mind around. But I'm telling you, that's the intent of the story in its ancient context. And so God is literally asking his agent, his secret agent, if you will, what's up with Job? And so all Satan does was report his thoughts. So then God says, okay, let's find out if this is true. And Satan goes as an agent, the adversary goes as an agent of God's will, not in opposition to God, not resisting God, not doing something other than what God wanted. He's responding to God, and he's functioning as an agent of God's will. Is that evil? Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. Let's look in Zechariah, another reference. Zechariah chapter 3, verse 1. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan, now remember, an adversary, not a proper noun, not an adversary standing at his right hand to oppose him. And the Lord said to the adversary, it always has the the definite article, the, it just doesn't get translated because our Western church needs a Satan. If they don't have a Satan, they don't have a cosmic enemy that is the problem, and that gives them a big problem. But I'm telling you in the original Hebrew, it's not a proper name, and the definite article, the, is there. So it should actually read this way. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and the adversary standing at his right hand to oppose him. And the Lord said to the adversary, the Lord rebuke you, (laughs) the adversary. The Lord has chosen Jerusalem, rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and was standing before the angel. And anyway, this this drama goes on. So who's the Satan in Zechariah? Because you can say, well, see right there, there's a a cosmic force that the Lord is rebuking. But again, we we, we don't understand the context of the Bible. We just open Zechariah like like it has no context, like it just came out of a vacuum, and we read that verse, and we overlay our subconscious and unconscious archetypes and beliefs over the text, and we think that what it says, but we're not seeing what it really says. We're reading back our own unconscious projections on the text. Because in the context of the story, the, the, um, there's a group of people who have been released from Babylon, exiles, Jews who are in high positions in Babylon, and Cyrus the king gives a decree for them to go back and rebuild the city and rebuild the temple. Well, there were already Jews, Jewish people living 
there at the time. So they had their land, they had their lifestyle, that kind of thing. And they hated the Babylonians, right? Because the Babylonians had just taken them captive and destroyed their city and destroyed their temple. And so now you have these Jewish people that, can I say it, in their mind, can we just be real? They were probably kissing the ass of the king. Is that okay? To get promoted. And now they're coming back with all this authority and power and they're installing their own high priest who is Joshua. The Jews that were there already had sacrifice. They already had a system. They're displacing their high priest. So the whole, the whole point of Zechariah and Haggai and some of these minor prophets is that they are, they are being a prophetic voice that is God speaking in the midst of the situation to settle the strife that's going on in Israel. So remember the adversary, when it's David, it's talking about a human being. When it's Solomon, it's talking about a human being. There's other places I could show you where the Hasatan is a human being. In this case, the adversary is those that are opposing the high priest because they think that he's unclean and filthy. And that's what they were saying. We can't have this high priest because he's defiled himself in Babylon. So what Zechariah is saying is he's saying, I see uh, Joshua standing, the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord, and I see this opposition that's coming from these people, and the Lord is speaking and saying, he's the one I've chosen to serve as the high priest. And that's the prophetic message of Zechariah to the people. There's not this cosmic courtroom battle that's going on. That is, a, that is an overlay of our own interpretation and mythology that, that we place on the text and then feed back to ourselves. Well, what about the serpent in the garden? It was a serpent. Unless you think the Bible's lying to you, because it says the serpent was the most subtle or the wisest or the craftiest of all the creatures that God had made. And the story is about, at some level, at its, at its literal level, is about why snakes don't have legs and crawl on the ground. It is a talking snake. There is nothing in the text that ever says it's a devil. There's nothing in the text that ever say, implies it's a celestial being. No, it's a story. It's a story. You have to put it there. You're putting it there. If you see a devil in the Garden of Eden, it's because you put a devil there. Because it's not in the text. Oh, man, am I feeling... You feel that? Can you feel that energy coming back at me? I told you I'm... I'm... Well, what about Lucifer? So let's look at a couple of those, and then we'll look at some New Testament stuff, and then we'll just see where this goes. They've taken away my Satan, and I don't know what hell they've placed him in. <laughs> so if you didn't hear that on tape, somebody just said Washington. <laughs> now, Ezekiel 28 is where we get the, the part of this. And it starts out in verse 12. It says, Son of man, take up a lamentation for the king of Tyre. It's an earthly king. And say to him, thus says the Lord. Now, notice he says, take up a, everybody say it with me, Lamentation. Everybody say with me, lamentation. Lamentation. It's important. We'll come back to that. And say thus to him, Thus says the Lord your God, You were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. The sardius, topaz, diamond, beryl, 
uh, onyx and jasper, sapphire, turquoise, the emerald with gold, the workmanship of your timbrels and pipes was prepared for you on the day you were created. For you were the anointed cherub who covers. See, Aaron, right, right there it is. See, he's got instruments. His whole being is just this one instrument, right? You were the anointed cherub who covers. I established you. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked back and forth in the midst of the fiery stones. You were perfect in your ways from the day you were created till iniquity was found in you. By the abundance of your trading, you became filled with violence within and you sinned. Therefore, I cast you as a profane thing out of the mountain of God and I destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the fiery stones. Now, there's a problem there if you have a fallen angel because God says right there, I destroyed you. It's a good place to pause and think about that. Or read it again. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I laid you before kings that they might gaze at you. And you can go on reading there. But now, remember, I'm cherry picking and taking it out of its context. Now, sure, you can take that as a literal reading and you can believe that God created this angelic being that was full of instruments. That somehow the the wind of God or the spirit of God would blow through him and he'd make this beautiful music. And you can say that he was a cherub and you can say that he covered heaven with his praises. That's where they get that. And this is where you get this whole idea that he became full of pride, he became lifted up, and God said, you're out of here. Are you breathing? But it's a lament to who? A lamentation to who? To whom? The king of Tyre. Now, let's come back. Let's go to the first part of the chapter. 28 verse 1. The word of the Lord came to me again saying, Son of man, say to the prince of Tyre, thus says the Lord God. Say to who? The prince of Tyre or the king of Tyre, same thing. Thus says the Lord God, because your heart is lifted up and you said, I am a God, I sit in the seat of gods in the midst of the seas, yet you are a man and not a God, though you set your heart as the heart of a God. Behold, you are wiser than Daniel. There is no secret that can be hidden from you. With your wisdom, with your wisdom and your understanding, you have gained riches for yourself and gathered gold and silver into your treasuries. By your great wisdom in trade, you have increased your riches and your heart is lifted up because of your riches. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you have set your heart as the heart of a God, behold, therefore, I will bring strangers against you, the most terrible of nations. They will draw their swords against the beauty of your wisdom and defile your splendor. They shall throw you down into the pit and you shall die the death of the slain in the midst of the seas. It's a prophecy against an earthly king who set himself up as a god. Guess where the gods resided? On the mountain of God. And he became lifted up and and he, he was a good businessman. So he became wealthy and the more wealthy he became, the more lifted up he became. Until finally God says, I'm going to bring nations against you and I'm going to destroy you. So he gives the prophecy to the king about what's going to happen. Then he says, take up a lamentation. What's a lamentation? A lamentation usually is a song that is sung. It is poetic and metaphoric by nature. It is a dirge, if you will, about the impending doom of something that's going to happen. It's not a literal thing. So he's saying, look, this is so, so now the symbolism makes sense. Think about it, they're singing this song. You are on the mountain of God. You were the anointed cherub. Listen, the, the, the Bible didn't invent cherubs. <laughs> All the ancient Near Eastern religions had cherubs. <laughs> so it was, do you see it? 
So he's just singing this song for the king of Tyre. So it's, it's, it's a literal prophecy to a literal king and a literal kingdom about him being lifted up with pride and being just, and, and destruction. And the moral, the moral to this story is don't get so full of yourself. You know, but there's all this teaching that, that, that Satan was trading, I don't know, in heavenly places or whatever, and they use that, and he was trading and doing all this, and it's complete and utter bullshit. It is complete nonsense. Because he's talking about a good businessman. Alright. But we don't read our Bibles. See, we cut and paste. We cut and paste, and then we put up these mythologies and these narratives for people, and then we respond to it like it's real. And then we're just in the neighborhood of make-believe. With King Friday and Queen Tuesday, or whoever she is. <laughs> All right, let's do the Isaiah one, and then we'll, we'll finish up, maybe. Are you guys doing okay? Yeah. Isaiah 14, verse 12. Here it is. How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. How you are cut down to the ground, you who weakened the nations. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. And I will sit in the mount of the congregation. Now, your Bible teachers will tell you that the anointed cherub in um, Ezekiel 28 is the same Lucifer in Isaiah 14. Same being. But right now you have a contradiction. Because why would he have to say, I will ascend into heaven... When Ezekiel 28 says he was in heaven, created there, and established there by God. Uh Uh-oh. Oops. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest side of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. Yet you shall be brought down to Sheol, to the lowest depths of the pit. Those who see you will gaze at you and consider you, saying, Is this the man... Oh, uh uh-oh. Is this the man who made the earth tremble, who shook kingdoms, who made the world as a wilderness and destroyed its cities, who did not open the house of his prisoners? All the kings of the nations, all of them sleep in glory, everyone in his own house. But you are cast out of your grave like an abominable branch, like the garment of those who are slain, thrust through with a sword, who go down to the stones of the pit like a corpse trodden under feet. You will be not joined with them in burial. He's talking about a man. What man is he talking about? Funny how the same principle works. In order to get Lucifer out of Ezekiel 28, you have to start in the middle of the text and cut and paste. In order to get Lucifer as an angel from heaven that fell, you have to start in the middle of the text and cut and paste. And we think it's the same being. But actually, Ezekiel's prophecy was against whom? The king of who? Tyre. Now watch this. Let's back up to verse 3 of Isaiah 14. It shall come to pass in the day of, that the Lord gives you rest from your sorrows and from your fears and hard bondage in which you were made to serve, that you will take up this proverb against the king of Babylon. What's a proverb? A proverb is like a parable. It's a story. In other words, The one who was saying he was going to exalt himself and become like God and be like the Most High was the king of Babylon. 
You see it? Yeah, yeah, but it says Lucifer in there. Oh, this, this is the best part. You ready for this? This is the best part. Lucifer, like Satan, is not a proper name. It's not a proper name. It is a word that means light bringer or light bearer, or actually, in the original text, it's the planet Venus. It's the planet Venus. It's a reference to the planet Venus. Morning star or evening star. Why is Venus called the morning star? Anybody? You can still see it in the morning, right? It's the last star that you see in the morning, right? Why is it called the evening star? Because it's the first star you can see. So guess what it is? In the mind of the ancients, guess what it is? It's the brightest star because it has to be dark in order for you to see the others. But this has enough light that it can shine through the light. And guess what it does? It competes with the sun. Guess what else it does? As the earth goes through its orbit and stuff, it descends to the ground until it disappears. So the ancients throughout their year would watch this star competing with the sun that would every year... Go into darkness. Now they didn't know stars were. What did what did uh, what did uh, the little guy in Lion King call them? Floating balls of gas in the sky or whatever. And what did Simba say they were? They were the kings who had died and passed on. Yeah, ancient kings. And so the, when the the ancients would look at the stars, they would notice there were certain stars that moved that they called planets, and they would call those stars gods. And they got their stories and their mythologies from the stars. And so what's very interesting is every Semitic religion, even those that greatly predate Abraham, the Canaanite religion, remember that Abraham came out of? The Canaanite texts and myths tell the story of Venus. Remember I said they're all polytheistic, right? And so El, El was a Canaanite god before Abraham. El was Canaanite God, and there was a God called Atar or Aftar or sometimes Ishtar, who was identified with the planet Venus. Why? Because he thought he was so big, such a big shot, that he ascended against El and started a war against El, and El cast him to the ground, and they identified him as Lucifer or Venus. And you can find it in almost every mythology, and pantheon that exists because it came from the stars. So Isaiah is using an astrological principle of Venus to talk about the fall of the king of Babylon. And he's using a common illustration and mythology drawing from the symbols and images of the day, just like we have to do to communicate. Now here's what you don't realize. Many of the early Christians... We don't know how many, but I would say a fair amount because the church fathers felt like they had to write about it. Believed that Yahweh was Lucifer. Why? Because they would look at this God. They could not get their head around the teachings of Jesus and the culture of early Christianity. They could not reconcile with the Old Testament writings and the God Yahweh. 
And many of them were coming out of pagan culture. You've got to understand that Rome was pagan culture. It, they had pantheons, and it, and it permeated everything. There wasn't secular culture, and, and you got it? And so they said, they looked at the writings where he said, where um, Yahweh says, I am Yahweh, and there is no God beside me. I am Yahweh, you shall have no other gods before me. And they said, look, he was the God who tried to rise up in rebellion. And they literally believed, the Gnostics literally believed that Jesus came from a higher God. And I'm going to tell you right now, the Gospel of John almost, almost did not make it into your canon of scripture because there were many church fathers that thought that it had Gnostic elements because Jesus says things like, no one has seen the Father at any time, but the Torah claimed that Moses had seen God, that the 70 elders had seen God and gone up and ate with him. But Jesus flat contradicts that and says, no one's seen God at any time. But he that's in the bosom of the Father, Jesus would call my Father. You neither seen my Father nor know my Father. You're of your Father the devil and the desires of your father you do and so it's quite possible that the Johannine community was closer to the Gnostics than to the Orthodox now I think we'd say today there's no way that Yahweh in the Bible the God of the Bible was the devil but we believe in some fictitious being called Lucifer that's running stuff in hell Taken away my devil and I don't know where you've laid him. So, so what about, what about the New Testament? I mean, so what do we do with this? So, in the New, you, you have to go back and watch my Wednesday night teaching. In the New Testament, when Jesus goes into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, I deal with that on that teaching. So I'm not even going to touch that. But let's think about this passage. How many remember when, when, when Jesus says to Peter, get behind me, Satan? And you have to project in your mind a cosmic being that's influencing Peter at that time. The Satan, the adversary, was also someone who would throw a stumbling block before people. Block their path. Remember law first mentioned? So if you go back into the story, I don't have time to take you there, but in Matthew 16, you go back into the story, Jesus rewards Peter. He says, who do men say that I am? And Peter says, you're the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, you're blessed. And watch, your name is Peter. What does Peter mean? Rock. And upon this bigger rock, you are Petros. And upon this Petra, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And then it says, from that time on, Jesus began to tell him how he would go into Jerusalem and be rejected by the scribes and the Pharisees and the chief priests and killed and put to death. And Peter comes and begins to shake him and say, not so, Lord. And Jesus says to him, get behind me, my adversary. Then he says this, watch. You are an offense to me. The word offense there means stumbling block. Watch. Stumbling block to me. For thou savorest not the things of God, watch this, but the things of men. And say you're thinking like the devil, that like those like in that in that skit, like the church lady, Satan, or like that little skit. Oh, the devil's that devil's got his heart. We, 
I mean, why didn't he call a prayer meeting? Why didn't he do a deliverance right there? Why didn't he bind it and cast it out? That's what we would do. Make a big show of it. Right? Watch this. You're a rock, and on this rock I will build my church, but I'm going to go and be crucified and rejected. And the rock, Peter, comes to him and begins to shake him and say, no, begins to what? Oppose him, begins to be adverse to him. And what does he say? Get behind me, you adversary. You are a stumbling stone. It's a play on words. You're a stumbling stone to me, for thou savorest not the things of God, but the things of man. So the Satan that Jesus was facing in Peter was Peter's own mindsets. When Jesus is facing Satan in the wilderness, Satan isn't showing up and breaking his refrigerator. What's he doing? He's saying stuff to him. So he's planting things, whatever. The, the, the adversary was thoughts and images and imaginations and doubts and things that were going on inside of Jesus. So the biggest Satan you'll ever face is the Satan within yourself. And this idea of Lucifer and the devil and all that stuff, more often than not, is the projection of our own shadow parts that we don't know how to deal with or what to do with. And rather than growing and owning those things, we project them as mythological images out there so that we think we're fighting something out there when really what we're having to do is win the battle in here. And it does not help you to box the air and fight the air because you're living in unreality and not in truth. Now the sad thing is, that Satan, this image of Satan has been used to oppose and persecute other people. Do you know, through the Middle Ages, like very early on, from about the time the Gospel of John was written on, the Jews were the personification of the adversary. They were the adversary much in the same way of Zechariah's adversary. So by the time Jerome and everything, but by the time they take this mythology and spin it together in uh, the Bible... In the church art, if you look at the depictions of the devil, if you look at the depictions of the devil, their their features are Semitic. So that literally in the visual art of the people and the Christians in the time, their devil looked like Jewish people. And the culmination of that in our time was the Holocaust. Because it's used to demonize people. Think about the Salem witch trials. What was I reading? You know, when, when, when the Inquisition with the Salem witch trials was going the strongest, one of the things they decided was a hallmark of the witch was the more innocent she was, the more she attended church, the more pure she appeared on the outside, the more likely it was that she was a messenger of Satan, a worker of iniquity and a witch. So they would take the ones who were trying their best to follow the faith and be the best and live purely, and they would take them and they would bring them to trial. And the way they would try them is they would hold them underwater. Like, this makes no sense. Like, they would hold them underwater, and if they drowned, you know, and then they'd bring them up. If they eventually drowned, then they were a witch. 
if they did, or uh, they were innocent, I think. I don't remember how it worked. But if they didn't drown, they weren't, they were with the burn them at the stakes, whatever. But I don't remember exactly how it works. But there was, I, I think, what did they estimate? A hundred thousand girls at one point in time that were killed just in the Salem witch trials? Because they were of the devil. Who was really acting more like the devil? See, we, we think as, as Christians we have to be beholden to orthodoxy, not realizing that it was the orthodox principles that were used as excuses for some of the worst bloodshed and atrocities in, that, that we know about. It's how the British, when they could go over, when we were in Kenya, the British would go over and they would set up these, they would take the land, set up these reserves, and then they would release uh, African men into their properties so they could go hunting them and hunt them like game. It's why Native people are upset about Columbus Day. Like, like all you know about Columbus is he's an archetype. In American history, have you ever read his journals? Have you ever looked at the atrocities that he actually committed? In the name of God, in the name of Jesus, in the name of the Christian Empire? And orthodoxy has been used to build the Christian Empire, and somehow we think if we break allegiance to orthodoxy, we're less Christian. I'll leave you with this. There, and I talk, you've you got to watch the other message because I talk about the powers of darkness and the other message, what they actually are. But for the most part, they're energies within ourselves that spin off and collectively gather and then influence other people to do evil. I forgot what I was going to say. <laughs> oh, yeah. So, Leon Payne, when we were... I don't know, early, late 90s or something, we went to hear this woman named Leanne Payne at Wheaton Bible College. She's a spirit-filled, little, little old, like, college literature professor uh, at Wheaton College who had built this incredible inner healing ministry that was setting people free. And I'll never forget, there was maybe a 1,000, maybe 800, maybe a 1,000 people there, and it was a week-long event. And it was the first evening with her lecture, or I think it was the first morning with her lectures. And she sat down and she opened up her notebook and she just began to read and she began to talk about the incarnation of Christ, the incarnational reality within you, the fact that the divine lives and resides within you. And she got about 15, 20 minutes into her lecture and this person just that was probably oppressed by demons, legitimate ones, starts screaming out. The, the the voices and stuff start screaming out and we start watching all this massive deliverance and here's the thing you could pick people out and you'd see them at the beginning of the week and by the time the end of the week their countenance had completely changed but they'd gone through four or five deliverance things where these darker energies were they were set free from them right so here's a woman who walked in so much healing presence and power that she didn't have to preach she didn't have to pray nothing she'd sit down and read her lecture to you and you think this is the most boring college class I've ever been in and yet there was so much power that she'd only get halfway through her lecture and people would start getting set free and healed. And she says in her book that her books are all about practicing the presence of God, acknowledging the presence of the divine that has incarnated within you. 
It's the foundation of everything. He says, when you practice that, you're practicing the true self, and it draws you up out of the hell of the false self, or what she calls the self in separation. And she would say this. She'd say, most of what we do in spiritual warfare is practicing the presence of darkness. It's practicing the presence of demons. See, when I go around and I acknowledge God is in me and God is in all things, I am practicing the presence of God. When I see a demon behind every bush, when I see demons attacking me, when I pray to devils instead of to God because I'm addressing Satan in prayer, she says you're practicing the presence of demons and you actually draw and attract those darker energies into your life by focusing upon them. So the more that you focus upon the demonic, the more that you focus on Satan, the more that you focus on negativity and the adversary and the powers of darkness, you are actually serving as an attractor for darker energies to attach and hook into you. And then you confirm their presence by their presence. And sometimes the only way out of that is to say, I'm going to stop practicing that. Now, I know it can shake you to let your worldview to the core, to let go of this idea that there's some cosmic being that's orchestrating all the evil in the world and all the opposition against yourself. I get it. And I get that I'm breaking with Christian orthodoxy, but again, know your history. And look at what the scriptures actually say, because it's pretty apparent. And more and more people are waking up to this fact. But I promise you, if you go on a 90-day demon fast... You just fast from demons for 90 days. They will quit showing up. If you're in the habit of looking for them, thinking about them, praying against them, praying to set other people free from them, you're going to keep seeing it everywhere. But just like, can can you see it? Just like when we were reading in Ezekiel, you're projecting onto the text your own unconscious belief, and then reading it back out of the text. When you say that there's a devil that is the serpent in the Garden of Eden, you're projecting a devil onto the text that is not revealed there, and then you're reading it back into the text. So actually what you're reading back is your own projection of your own belief system, not what's really there. And when you operate in life believing there is a devil that is against you, you are doing the same exact thing. You are projecting your own belief system onto cause and effect and circumstances, and then you're reading it back into your life as your own confirmation, not realizing that you're lost in the darkness of your own imaginary consciousness. (laughs) Not dealing with the realities of cause and effect in your life. That's why I can get so foolish, and you've heard me say this, that there was one church in town where the intercessors went through this guy's house, and they're having trouble in their marriage, and they said, we know what the problem is. We know what the problem is. We know what's causing you to have problems in your marriage. We know it's the devil, because God blesses, doesn't curse. So we know it. We know it's, it's the devil, but how's that devil getting foothold? We, we, we came to your house. We searched your house. I mean, how creepy is that? The intercessors are going to come in and search your house and find whatever it is that's a hook for the devil. They found it. It was a box of Lucky Charms. That's a church in this town. It was a box of Lucky Charms because we know that that's all superstition and an elf, you know, is part of some pagan, Celtic pagan thing and, and a horseshoe and a, and a unicorn and whatever else is in there. These are all mythological evil creatures. And so because you are ingesting daily 
these demonic things into your being, it is showing up as marital problems in your life. Now, that's an extreme example, but I promise you, that's a real... I'm, I'm telling you that. I'm not making that up. I wish I was. But we do the same thing often when we project a cause out there that does not exist to explain the effects that we are experiencing in our own lives. And so, again, if you'll just go on a 90-day devil fast... Like, just don't blame the devil for anything. Don't look for the devil. Don't talk to the devil. Don't blame the devil. And just fast from it for 90 days. Watch how differently your life will be. Because you know what? You actually might begin to see some cause and effect correlations in relationships. And you might actually be able to work on problems and solutions in your life that are effective rather than ones that are just beating the air. I know because I read that in a book. I'm telling you the truth of my own experience. Like the devil leaves me alone. And you know what else is great? I don't have to, I don't have to say, well, the devil got a hold of so and so. You know, you get into an argument or something. Well, that's just the devil opposing me. People don't like what I'm saying because I'm challenging ancient archetypes and their subconscious. And so they come at me on Facebook or whatever ways they come at me, sometimes in person. I don't have to say, oh, that's the devil resisting what I'm doing. can actually engage in a loving, compassionate way with the person. Rather than, oh, they, you see it? So, I mean, it's a real problem. Okay, so i gotta, I got to quit there. So I'm sorry. I kept you longer than I wanted to. Um, I know that probably leaves you with more questions and answers. Uh, but again, I would encourage you, I, I posted the Wednesday night message. If you haven't seen it yet, uh, maybe go back and watch that. And maybe that will fill in some of the blanks for you. Uh, it's also on the podcast. So anyway, have an amazing day. God bless you. I love you. Um, thank you for coming out. Thank you for listening uh, to me and being patient You know, as we go through this process. So God bless you. Have a great day.